Mustang and Sally. Guess you better slow that Mustang down. Mustang and Sally, now baby, get your bed slow, Mustang down. You've been running all over the town. Oh, you got to put your flat feet on the ground. Bought me a brand new Mustang. 1965. Now you come around, signify woman, and you don't want to let me ride. Mustangs early now, baby. Alright. Yes, you better slow the Mustang down. One of these pretty mornings, I'm gonna be wiping your weeping eyes. Your weeping eyes. Um. <sighs> yeah, I'll take a request. Uh, I don't know every song, but if I do know a song, I'll belt it out. Uh, how's everybody doing? It's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, finally, after a lot of rain. Maybe it'll stay that way. Who knows? Either way, I'll be here. Uh, America the beautiful. God Spread her legs for me. I mostly don't know rap, thank you very much. Still winter in Europe. Well... I know it was like the, the mildest winter ever, right? That's why uh, Putin got owned, because he was expecting everybody to start eating each other because of uh, heating costs, but then it was too nice out, and nobody had to pay uh, to prevent freezing to death. I finished the second book of the Three Body Trilogy. I finished number two. And uh, it definitely does uh, get wild the, when they start going, telescoping out the time frame and you're 200, mile, 200 years into the future. And it's fun. I still don't really, I don't know. It still isn't hitting for me. I'll read the third one now. I'm committed. But uh, it's just, it ain't hitting. And I mean, maybe part of that is that I just fundamentally disagree with the thesis about uh, aliens and the, the, the underlying assumption about other uh, species that might exist in the galaxy somewhere. I love, okay, yes, uh, the Vatican has disowned the doctrine of discovery. Uh, yes, huge, huge deal. I'm sure all those countries are going to be given back now because the Pope doesn't say you can do it anymore. 
It's been a while since the Pope had any uh, had any divisions or any ability to even uh, be a broker between secular authorities. Yeah, the Pope should uh, should do something really wacky. Although he might be out of time, he might be uh, he might be done for. In which case, we could get my favorite thing, which is a papal election. Don't get better than the papal elections, and there's been so frustratingly few in my lifetime. In the Middle Ages, you'd get a papal election every two weeks because. Um, Rome was essentially a malarial swamp, and anybody who got elected pope who didn't live in Rome, as soon as they made the trip to Rome, they risked getting sick, getting malaria, and dying. And so it was the popes. The popes did not last long. Uh, we get to I get to show up like almost at the same time as this motherfucker who who was pope forever, John Paul II. And if it wasn't for fucking Ratzinger, uh, uh, just pulling the plug, pulling the shoot, it wouldn't even have had. Uh, we would have only had one election, and it would have been just now after he what just died. And where another interesting thing is that I think we're on. We were before John Paul II. I think we were on something like a four hundred year long string of. Italian popes. Like, I think once the Avignon papacy, papacy collapsed, it was just Italian popes. And then I have not had an Italian pope my entire life. The closest thing is, is Francis, because he's uh, Argentinian, which means he's basically Italian, but still, you know, not technically from there. And uh, I don't think we, we might never get another Italian pope. Depending on, you know, how they want to try to keep the, the papacy relevant. Keeping waiting for the African pope. Which, that will be awesome. You had young pope, you had a new pope, we need black pope. I think there's a guy in Ghana, maybe Robert Serra. He's like a Ratzinger reactionary guy. He always ends up being on the on the lists when they're talking about popes. But you can't beat the pageantry of it because you get the lists of all the potential papal uh, candidates. You can you know uh, you can handicap them and figure out who's who who's got the likelihood. And then of course the wonderful smoke, the smoke billowing out of the chimney as they vote. Uh, it's lovely. It's a lovely tradition, and uh, I've seen frustratingly few. So maybe Francis will kick off and we'll get another one. Indonesian Pope? Filipino Pope? Uh, we need some sort of wacky Pope. Yeah, Muslim Pope. How about that? Uh, Mel Gibson, make him the Pope. 
You don't have to be uh, an ordained clergyman to be pope. The same way that you do not have to be an, a lawyer to be a Supreme Court justice. Though, and the last time that we've had one, uh, I believe was Hugo Black, was the last Supreme Court justice to have not been a lawyer. But I don't think we've ever had a non-ordained pope. Too bad. And yes, you do not have to be a representative to be Speaker of the House, which frustratingly has never been taken advantage of. I hope maybe as gridlock continues and as that job becomes less and less appealing for people in Congress, I'm hoping that uh, farming that job out to gimmick candidates becomes more popular. Yeah, people talk about making Trump speaker. He would not want that job because it's work, and he doesn't like doing work. But uh, it's pop. It's certainly something that I'm kind of annoyed has not been brought broached more because it's absolutely legal. It's all perfectly legal. Robert Sarah, that's his that's his name. He's uh he's a cardinal from Guinea. They always talk about him being uh maybe pope, but then it doesn't happen. We could definitely use an, a good anti-pope. I think all these state of Atticus dorks should stop complaining and fucking set up a goddamn Avignon papacy somewhere, like Branson, Missouri. Yeah, no, no, it wouldn't be Brooklyn. It would have to be, uh, it would have to be in Dime Square, right? The Pope, the Pope's, uh, the the Vatican would be in like that Popeyes on Canal Street or something. Popeyes. I don't know. I feel like it's time to pull the plug. Christianity washed. If you want to believe in a monotheistic God, if you want to believe in the Abrahamic conception of a God, an intervening, all-powerful, embodied uh, reflection of humanity that uh, you feel a, a, a spiritual and social connection to, then just be a Muslim. It's the perfection of it's the perfection of Christianity. It is it is uh, it is monotheism, fully uprooted from its uh, uh, pre-Christian tribal roots. Like all the stuff that makes Christianity so baffling, the fucking Trinity. The, the uh, God Jesus is man is is both uh, is is man and is God all that confusing shit that they by the way people say oh it's that's not that confusing the first well, as soon as Christ, when Christianity was a was made a established religion of the Roman Empire the next 
what, 100 years of the church is just people fighting about the nature of Christ? There's nothing intuitive about any of that. It is very, very weird. And it's because you have uh, Christ embodying this specific historical, cultural uh, role of Messiah, which really does complicate the notion of, of monotheism. But then a couple hundred years later, out in the desert, in the margins of the big empires, uh, where the people who don't want to be a subject of the Sassanids or of the Byzantines uh, are living in tribal existence out in the, in the, in the desert, uh, surviving on trade and piracy, Muhammad comes up and is like, hey, we figured this out. We squared the circle here. I am talking to God, but that's it. I'm just a guy, just the regular guy God decided to talk to. And I have contended that, that the uh, messianic heart of Christianity was continued by, in Europe, uh, was continued by the socialist movement. But that has ended, as I said a few weeks ago. The Battle of Armageddon was fought all over the world and lost. Now we have this, uh, this worship of the self in the West. Uh, that's it. Whereas uh, Christian, yes, Joseph Smith did Islamify Protestantism. That has been pointed out many times. Harold Bloom wrote a whole book about how uh, Mormonism is is American Islam, and that is very true. The whole the prophetic tradition, because uh, you have saints in Christianity, obviously, but what you don't have after Jesus is anyone who can be. The prophet, a prophet, uh, whereas by allowing Muhammad, you know, to be a man among men in contact with God, you've opened up the the, the flutes and allowed in, in the in the chimney, and that's what Joseph Smith did for Christianity in America. Because they needed to avoid uh, becoming subjects. They needed to avoid the encroaching uh, extinguishment of the American promise that justified all that had been done on the American continent. All the violence, all the misery of, of dominating and settling that land was to allow for the creation of uh, fully autonomous social beings uh, to live in a way that was impossible in old Europe. But around the time that uh, 
Smith has his revelation, and a bunch of other people are having revelations in the same t place, upstate New York, the frontier is closing. Now, obviously, America still has this huge frontier, but it is for the most adventurous. It's for the boldest. It's for the craziest. It's for the Scotch-Irish, people who are willing to risk fighting Indians all day to keep their land. But, like, say, the but the states... The former colonies are no longer in play. They're no longer, um, there's no longer any promise within them of continued escape from a uh, degraded social relation. Like New York, for example, a lot of that upstate land was dominated by the old Dutch families who had settled there before the revolution. They became known as the Patroons. Cool name. And then a lot of other upstate land was given as reward to military veterans of the revolution. And some, uh, some veterans made that land their home. They became successful farmers. Uh, but a lot of people ended up having to sell their land to the local landowner who was able to uh, outcompete them due to economies of scale. And you see this internal migration, first from New England, of those who can't make it there, to upstate New York to try to grab some of that land in the last little burst of it after the revolution. And then it is exactly at eight, in the 1820s when the Erie Canal has created this commercial corridor through the heart of agricultural New York and the possibility of holding your own property in New York in the long run starts to go away. And that is when everyone finds Christ again because they're searching for that apocalyptic horizon. Now that uh, their dream of... Uh, territorial paradise has been denied them. Oh no, we're not all going to get to live on our own perfect little plots and, and work on our own terms and interact with the market on our own terms. We are going to be thrust into commercial relationships that are going to strip us of all of that, all that allows us to feel unalienated. Ugh, nose is all itchy today. And it's not because I did cocaine, okay? I don't do that. Thank you. Uh, I just have some, I don't know, dry air now that it's stopped raining. I don't know. But the Yeoman Dream, which is heaven on earth, which is the paradise promised, is, is going away. So you have to find it elsewhere. Uh, and so you have the Seventh-day Adventists emerge out of the Millerite movement got the Mormons, got a bunch of things exploding all at the same time and place. And the political expression of that is the anti-Masonic party. Because you've got everybody searching for uh, a, a new way to find heaven, a new way to find uh, paradise, looking to grab Christ's hand because the old ways aren't working anymore because the material basis for them has been 
uh, dissolved. But there is also the desire for a uh, political solution to this problem. Maybe there is a way for us to reclaim our patrimony through the political process. We do live in a democracy, don't we? And yet someone in upstate New York looks around in the 1820s and they see uh, only political all political organizations dedicated to dispossessing them in the name of the banks. So where, how can we solve this? How can we fix this? If both parties, uh, which at this point is really just the dissolving uh, corpus of the old Democratic Republican Party, you have the Jacksonians emerging around this new Democratic Party, which has been created, which is being created in the back rooms by Martin Van Buren, part of the same process. Uh, and there's really no other organized opposition to the democracy. Now, Jackson's promise is enough for many yeomen in other parts of the country. But in New York specifically, where, for example, the canal and associated internal improvements, which Jacksonian democracy is finds holds in anathema, are crucial to the economy. Uh, Jacksonianism is not as appealing, but there's no alternative. So how can we organize our opposition to the current existence through, around a paranoid narrative that there are these people in government, the Masons, who are conspiring to rob us of our liberty. And they are aided in that by a sensational true crime case that occurs around this time when this guy, William Morgan, who had been a, an upstate New York Freemason, had left and was going around claiming that he was going to write a book about it and expose the Masons and all their secrets. He was arrested for fraud on an unrelated charge, and he was in a, in a county jail when a couple of guys came and sprung him out and he and disappeared with him. And his body was later discovered in a river. And this caused a huge sensation in the press. The, the, the Masons had murdered this guy as part of their cabalistic desire to protect their secrets. And it led to this uh, political movement in opposition to the current consensus. And a lot of the people who arise in anti-Masonic politics end up becoming very important Whigs when the Whig party does finally coalesce to oppose Jacksonianism over the course of its term. Guys like Millard Fillmore and Thurlow Weed, who later becomes one of the founders of the Republican Party. They start off as animasons, not necessarily because they believe this shit, but because they see it as a road to power and influence. Now, a little bit before this, at this in the same context, though, you have Martin Van Buren. Who is Martin Van Buren? He is the son of a tavern keeper who lives on, who rents property from one of these Dutch patroons. So you have a downwardly mobile Dutch family. They've, they've got a little bit of something, but it's certainly not... Uh, 
It's not the established landholding that'll keep you away from uh, being uh, dominated by commerce. Uh, but it is, it's a holding action. They're, they're, they don't own. They're renters. And they, they got to fucking draw pints for people to stay ab above uh, water. Martin Van Buren, coming up in this environment, is like, fuck this. He does what you could do back then, which is just read a bunch of law books. Doesn't go to uh, uh, school or nothing. Just like Lincoln, actually. Uh, uh, it then becomes a apprentice at a law firm becomes a lawyer, and then becomes a politician. And what he does is he realizes power can be had in New York for people like me, people who are not of the massive landed power, landed families, if I can organize the other guys who are like me around a program by using nothing more complicated than the technology of writing a fucking letter. It's, it's committees of correspondence. Just writing to other legislators and saying, hey, do you like me? Check yes, check no. Do you want to do do you want to vote the same way on things? And of course, this is a violation of the principles of government as set down by the founding fathers. The premise of democracy, according to the founders, was men of principle and standing come together and make uh choices that are for the best according to their understanding of that. Van Buren said, how about we all vote the same way that will advance our collective interest, a party, if you will. And seal connections, not through just ideology, although there's part of that, but through patronage. Make it in people's best self-interest to go along with our line and to vote our way and to have their friends and family vote our way. And it, and But Van Buren sees that the route to power, given the broken uh, retreat to provincialism that occurred after the era of good feeling and the Democratic-Republican Party starts to break down under Madison or under Monroe, is... Uh, an alliance between these commercial New Yorkers and the Virginia planter aristocracy. Because they had a shared hostility to the big merchant interests of the northern states. Because these guys, the Van Buren boys, were not of that uh, class. They were of the Arrivist insurgent middle. So they could ally with the old aristocracy in Virginia. Of course, guys like Van Buren in Virginia uh, were very hostile to those interests and ended up becoming Whigs. But that's not Van Buren's problem. He creates a coalition uh, that works both ways. And so uh, among the most successful, uh, maybe charismatic, maybe hustling, I don't know, whatever word you want to use. Among those people in New York, you have this, there's still a political uh, prize to be grabbed. And then for voters, there's the dream of uh, some sort of cleansing anti-Masonic fire. And then among the, the commoner folk, there is the dream of imminent apocalypse, either through 
Mormonist, the Mormon vision of collective life, or the Millerites who just figured, oh my God, this guy did the math in the Bible and God's going to show up next Tuesday and we can just chill until then. But now all that, all that, uh, all the juice is gone. Nobody believes that there's any uh, apocalyptic horizon except for the science worshipers who think that they're going to live in a robot forever on Mars, some of that bullshit. Everybody else is now just in a terminal, uh, either denial or uh, violent hostility to a future that they cannot imagine as being anything other than an annihilation. And that's why Islam is the only uh, live wire. But it is linguistically and culturally alien, I think, uh, to Westerners in a way that means there's, you're not, you're not going to see any large-scale conversion to it. I think you're just going to see uh, a further doubling down on the worship of the self, uh, a clinging towards technology as of imagined deliverance. But I don't know. I, I, we all need ha to have some sort of imaginative intervener. There has to be some symbolic conception of forgiveness. Because without that, then you really only have doubling, tripling, quadrupling down into oblivion. Uh, like uh, Thomas Hobbes is one of the first people in uh, Western political thought to take God out of the equation of uh of statecraft and of justification of authority. He was, he was able to, he was like, okay, if we're not saying God, God is, uh, wills this social order, then what, what does justify and, and validate this social order? And his premise that the nature of humanity is all consuming war with one another does follow from that original premise of, okay, take God out of the equation. Take forgiveness, reconciliation out of the equation. Take the world as it is, which is a series of vastly unequal, vastly exploitative class societies 
that are organized around internal domination and remove the, the structures of authority that underpin them, like a Jenga tower. Pull down the one, pull, pull the slats at the bottom that keep this thing going. The, the, the concepts of legitimacy that keep people obeying them. Because it is all at a, at a base level consensual. Like we are all consenting every moment. Uh, because we value something that we are given by this order enough to continue to survive and persist within it. If you remove those slats, what will you have? You will have the war of all against all. You will have red and tooth and claw, nasty Brutus and short existence. Because you will have these broken shards of pottery that cannot be brought back together. But that is not the eternal, transcendent nature of humanity. I mean, humanity only was able to come into itself to the extent it has through a fundamental cooperation. Human evolution becomes collective at a certain point. Once a, 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 a sufficient technologies accrue to facilitate communication. And then you have a collective process, a collective endeavor that pushes humanity into, into new heights of abstraction, an ability to act co collectively, to uproot and redefine nature. And once you get to that point, talking about individuals, individual rights, individual anything is kind of nonsensical because uh, it is a social fiction that facilitates social action until technology develops enough to reify the individual uh, and put every human at war at at transcendent interdimensional jihad with the natural. And what Christianity allowed for for a long time and then the socialist vision allowed for afterwards was a uh, was the capacity to imagine a radical transformation of subjectivity in a positive direction. I think now, in the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon, 
one of the things that fixes us and freezes us into this death spiral is that we can only conceive of radical changes of subjectivity as uh, catastrophe, as disaster, because our subjectivity, our, uh, the ones that we hold, is all that there is. It is it, they, they have become transcending categories that must be protected for civilization to mean anything. Civilization doesn't have worth if it does not if it is not a vessel for the uh, ambitions and and concepts of these reified individuals that we that we find ourselves to be. So yeah, now all we have is the bad Armageddon on the horizon to be constantly feared. I, I have stipulated, though, can never arrive because we're afraid of it, but we're also kind of seeking it because even if it is the end of this subjectivity, if this subjectivity is a curse, then even that can be thought of as a deliverance. Uh, but only in that nihilistic death drive sense, not in the idea that we could transcend it. That is foreclosed. So whatever decline we might be imagining, it will not have the collective, simultaneous, apocalyptic time frame that we're fantasizing about. It will happen individually. And the people left who have not been swallowed will maintain their agonized interposition between the abyss that they fear and secretly crave and the uh, unbearable but also addictive uh, now. Unless there's a nuclear war, of course. But I honestly think if there was a nuclear war, it would not be the planet ender that people feared in the 50s. I think you'd have, I think you, I can see very definitely, like in the next hundred years, conflicts arising that lead to some sort of nuclear exchange. But I don't think that the uh, networks to trigger total uh, unleashing of nuclear payloads uh, really exist now, let alone will in the future. They will only decay further with time. But I mean, nuclear winter, you know, the dinosaurs were taken out by a giant fucking asteroid that, that created similar conditions. And we're here now. Well, what could survive that? and come later, and uh, retrospectively redeem all that came before, which is what we're actually talking about, right? That, 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 is, that is the, uh, the socialist continuation of the, of the Christian apocalyptic vision, is to transform humanity 
not just at the point of uh, apotheosis, but then retrospectively throughout all of time. And as long as that like cycle persists, and I think that it is eternal, you can talk about, oh, heat death of the universe, but what happens after the heat death of the universe? You have the same conditions that persisted before the Big Bang. You get another fucking universe. It's all in one thing. There's nowhere for it to go. You know, there's no outside of this. So, like, there is no end. There can't be. So that means that we are always on the board. We are all we always have a we always have a chance. We're always in the game. And the fact that we are all here having these conversations does in my gut make me think that the thing that we're all despairing for being impossible has already happened. Because it what's it's what retrospectively animates all of us. Because if we are in a consciousness field. What is the nature of consciousness? It is retrospective. It is a response to phenomena. It is not phenomenon itself. And like that's all a bunch of airy bullshit. But what it does for me is it allows for presence. It, al it, it allows me to imbue the moment that I embody with meaning. Yeah, somebody asked about uh, Brazil and China making an agreement to pay each other without having to go to dollars. I mean, that is inevitable. I mean, honestly, people talk about how, like, the dollar is losing its uh, footing because of, uh, uh, you know, we're printing too many bills or any of that moralistic gold bug hogwash. I think a lot of it comes down to that we have radically abused the notion of sanctions, like we have gone so sanctions crazy in the post uh soviet era uh like sanctions as a tool of american statecraft and warfare such that like only using the dollar becomes a, a surrendering of sovereignty if you're if you're another country So I think that is driving a lot of this. I really still don't think anybody is trying to create an alternative to the dollar because you would have to destroy your sovereign control. Like who is, the Chinese are really the only people who have any viable claim to doing that. But if they did it, I've said this before and nobody, they would have to surrender the party's control of their economy. They would have to 
get rid of the capital controls that they have on their currency. That would be cutting their own throats. If they don't want to be like us, if they don't want to be in a position where the government is control is the government is a hollow shell where a bunch of totally senile buffoons bang into each other like they're on a fucking electric football table while finance actually makes every meaningful decision and government is essentially vestigial. If they don't want that, then they have to keep their control of their currency. And that is, if we're, if we're, if, 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 if you have a project and it does seem, I got to say as much, I would not call it socialism, but I do think that there is a, uh, a national, uh, economic program that the Chinese Communist Party is able to hold control of and has not ceded yet, their ability to hold on to that goes away if they become a uh, reserve currency. Now the question is, what about going back to Keynes and creating a separate currency for international transactions, which was what he proposed at Bretton Woods. And hilariously, this is very funny. So Keynes at, at, uh, at Bretton Woods, they're talking, how are we going to make the post-war economy? How are we going to make the post-war financial system work? We don't want another fucking war. How are we going to do it? And everybody understood there's going to have to be a global reserve currency. Also that God love the Brits, but it wasn't going to be the pound sterling with a fucking gold standard anymore. So what is it going to be? And Keynes says there should be a, a, a separate currency that is not any international currency that is used for international exchange. And I believe he said that it should be pegged to like a basket of the value of a, bas a certain basket of commodities. And it was really never, I mean, it was a non-starter. Nobody, no, because America was writing the rules and they weren't going to give up that, that uh, Trump card. But the big guy who uh, maneuvered to neutralize that was one of the chief Bretton Woods negotiators for the United States, Harry Dexter White, who was also a Soviet spy. So the, a Soviet spy helped entrench post-war American economic hegemony. The, post, the very post-war economic hegemony that eventually strangled the Soviet Union. Of course, that's because at that point in 1944, all the, all the communists and fellow travelers at the high levels of government in the United States had convinced themselves that they would take over the United States from within that they would, through the vessel of the Democratic Party, eventually be able to direct the politics of the United States. Like, MacArthur obviously was a, was a demagogue and a crook, but there absolutely were communists at the highest levels of government in the United States. The thing was, their goals were the same as American imperial goals. Because America needed to win the war and be create the dominant structures so that they could be taken over. 
then we all know what happened. They kicked Wallace off the ticket. That fucking little thug Truman becomes president. And it's all over, folks. All over but the shouting. Yes, Wallace was Wallace was the thin end of the uh spear. He was he was the lever. He was gonna be the guy. And he was not a communist himself. He was a pure strain American uh mainline Protestant do-gooder. The 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 like the end of the uh Midwest uh prairie populist tradition. Uh, but in the context of the popular front, that meant that he was allied with a lot of uh, self-conscious communists, like either people who were working for the Soviets or who considered themselves to have a uh, socialist political horizon. Now, of course, it's very funny that the Birchers start freaking out about how the UN is a communist plot. All these institutions are communist plots because they, because the Birch, John Birch Society represented the small manufacturers uh, and, and capitalists in America who depended upon this new international order, but who had no responsibility for it. And so were alienated from it and could blame all of their discontent with a life that is not as good as it should be on these evil machinations, even though the real problem is that the society that they fetishized only creates unhappiness, only manufactures misery. It sells eternal happiness. It sells uh, unbounded pleasures. And those can be uh, sought and briefly attained, but the consistent experience is of continual disappointment of continual agitation. Because you have a society running on the uh, the empty desire of uh, the consumer. Wallace definitely would not have dropped a bomb on Japan. There's no question about that. The real interesting thing is, would FDR have dropped a bomb on Japan? And FDR surviving isn't actually as crazy as I used to think it was. Because for me, I always used to think, it, oh, the question is always Wallace because FDR, by the time he was, by the time he got erected, he was circling the drain. Uh, I've said this before, but it's very funny that right before he went to his final uh, uh, retreat to Warm Springs, Georgia, he had a physical and the doctors took his blood pressure and it was like over 300. Like the, the top line was over 300. But what are you going to do? Good luck. Maybe take a bath. <laughs> Maybe that'll help. But apparently, blood pressure medication was patented only a, like a year or so after he died. So what about, maybe do a little wave there, and uh, they figure out how to control blood pressure a couple years earlier. 350-195, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and all they could do is be like, well, uh, maybe sitting in warm water will help. <laughs> because there was nothing to do. There was no, there was no treatment for it. But then they and the, but the first effective blood pressure drugs were patented only a few years later. 
So FDR doesn't die. FDR gets to like at least a couple years into his the fourth term. Does he drop the bomb? I kind of don't think so. I suspect he would not. Because I do feel that FDR and, and like right wingers now have figured this out and are now like condemning him for this. I think uh, Conceptual James had a whole thread about this a while ago where it's like, yeah, what you're saying is correct, but it's also good. And that was that FDR really did not see Stalin as a post-war enemy. He did not envision the end of the war being a process of confrontation with the Soviet Union. He and the people around him were imagining that it would be a that it would be a genuine world. It would be a continuation of the Yalta and Tehran process, because all through the war, Churchill, Stalin, and 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 uh, FDR are having these conferences, and they're moving through all of these big questions. And I believe FDR thought that's going to be the future post-war is us having these continual periodic negotiations around these big questions. But of course, he dies, Truman gets in, and then Yalta is the last one. Uh, there's a story about how they uh, successfully tested the, um, the bomb at Trinity. Uh, And they tell um, uh, Truman this, and he just goes in swinging his dick around like, fuck you. Like, I don't need to listen to anybody's bullshit anymore. Because we got the bomb. So yeah, FDR lives, I think, but here's the very important thing. When you imagine this stuff, and you imagine any number of different ways that the great conflict of the 20th century could have gone, say you do have a longer-lived uh, FDR, or you get Wallace as president in 45, that does not mean you're going to have some sort of peaceful transition to socialism. I think guys like FDR and Wallace thought that was what was going to happen. You would have had a century as bloody as the one we got, but the battle lines would have been different. And I really think that is the dream that died. Not actually getting, not only to experience yourself, but to even conceptualize in the, in the, in the life of your children an actualized socialist world where human potential can be unlocked. Rather, it is a world where that fight can be made in earnest. Like, that you can participate in that conflict with your whole heart and not have that battle be waged largely by people who are making uh, emotional compensations for other problems in their lives.
because now politics is for sickos. Uh, that's that's the reality of uh, the post-war world. This politics becomes the domain of people who are compensating, not people who are uh, trying to advance an agenda because that agenda has been obscured. Like People want to blame the new left for being a bunch of self-indulgent uh, uh, narcissists whose po politics was entirely personalized and, uh, and uh, moralized. It's not their fault. That's all that was left. The people who, in the previous generations, were funneled into political action by the promise of advancement through it, through struggle, had been, in America, bought off. Uh, a deal was struck in in a bunch of different battles culminating in a number of large-scale legislative victories for labor that made politics no longer a rational, reasonable thing to care that much about. <coughs> and so their kids come up and they want to do politics they want to make things better, but not really for themselves because they are the most God-blessed and lucky people to ever live on earth. They're, they're living in Trajan's Rome. They've got the fruits of everything at their fingertips. But what they have inherited is this finely calibrated moral sense that seeks to push beyond consumption, push beyond uh, plenty as the, as, as a, as the only, uh, uh, index of human advancement and, and of, of satisfaction. And of course, fails miserably because it's not connected to a drivetrain of class struggle. It's been detached by mass home ownership and mass media. And that's why you can write all day about the failings of the new left and the contemporary left, such as it exists, not as an actual political movement, but as individuals making political, politically inflected consumer choices, really, is all we're talking about. But it's all meaningless. It's beside the point because they didn't drive anybody off. They did not... Uh, set the conditions that we live in, they're responding, as we all are, to conditions that have been made at the material level and that are being reproduced materially and had the effect of blunting uh, class politics, redirecting it, redefining class in America redefining the subjective experience of living. Mass media changed what it meant to experience class. It broke up the reinforcing social experience of collective exploitation and created instead indi fully individualized, fully customized consumer experiences, mediated experiences of life in America that def 
definitionally and as first principle def- deny and neutralize class as a subjective element of American life. I don't know. There's, it says here class, they have mass media, they have collective class identity. Kind of. They had a, I, I talked a few times ago about how France was the closest place that had like a alliance between new left students and workers. Because there were the factories did shut down in May of 68. But what happened? There was a huge, huge, huge uh sector-wide raise given to workers to get them back in work. And it did. It worked. The same mechanisms work. They work more in America because people's lives are already mediated by space in a way that they aren't in a, in a European country because of free real estate. The post-war suburbanization of the country is the necessary social terrain where media can intervene and redefine human subjectivity. And that that uh, spatial intervention of suburbanization, that's really only happens in America. And that is why America is this vanguard in so many respects uh, and where and why socialism does not adhere here. And there is no self-conscious socialist uh, political party. But Eric Foner wrote a... a, a article about this once that was very influ- very influential for me. Because um, this is a, lo- a long-standing question in American political science. Why is there never a socialist party in the United States? We had socialist parties, of course, but they were always third parties. They never became dominant structures the way they did in Europe. Why not? And there's been a bunch of quite answers to this question that have been promoted. And, th- and this uh, article that Fona wrote, uh, he goes through a lot of them. And he says why they might make sense, why they might not. But then he ends it by just reversing the question and saying, when we look at what the socialist parties of Europe ended up from like the standpoint of history, because that for, that question was first posed in 1911, you know, when, when socialist parties were everywhere and were redefining politics throughout Europe. They looked at America and they said, what's going on? But now, but he was writing in the 90s and uh, or, the, or the early aughts. And, and from that position, he looks back and says, well, all of these socialist parties that the early 19th century American socialists were so envious of and have been wondering after for a century, where did they end up? The, the Labour Party of, of, uh, of uh, the UK, the, 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 the Socialist Party of France, the SDP. Where did they end up? SPD, I guess. <laughs> they ended up exactly where the Democratic Party was. They ended up exactly where the U- US left-wing party ended up. So then it's not really a question of why didn't America get a socialist party? It's what what was present in America earlier that ended up occurring everywhere else. And to my mind, it is simply that it created a non-class-based political identity subjectivity for workers earlier 
And what allowed it to do that was mass home ownership. First mass uh, uh, access to expropriated native lands, a yeoman, a yeoman um, horizon. But then once that ended, uh, home and land ownership for the individual. And those processes ended up happening in Europe too. You know, the, 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 the European working class got access to those imperial super profits too. Like that's how the world system post-war was set up. It was to keep the, keep uh, these Europeans from going to crazy again with uh, nihilistic or utopian social fantasies, communism or, or fascism by uh, allowing them some of that American consumer experience. And it worked. It worked enough to detach uh, workers from an intuitive drive towards struggling for political power. Someone says, even Khrushchev tried to do that. Yeah, and, and, and people to this day love yelling at Khrushchev and condemning Khrushchev as an awful revisionism for shifting to a consumer economy in the 50s. He had no choice. Stalin, and he had every reason to do this, Stalin, at the end of World War II, was like, okay, let's just, let's take a breather here. We just got our asses fucking hammered. We need, we need, we need some space and some time. But that meant allowing the United States to define the post-war economic order, which they did. And in that post-war economic order, if the Soviets were to compete with the West, they were going to have to continue exploiting labor, creating state profits that could be invested into the project, especially military spending once the bomb gets fucking invented. And that means... That the, 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 the hope, the Soviet dream of worker control over their lives has to be delayed further. What do you give them in return? You have to give them something else. And the only thing left is some uh, simulacrum of the consumer experience that they were certainly aware existed in the West. So it's like, if you don't think Stalin was wrong to uh, make a make peace with, this, with this, the West after World War II, then you can't get that mad at Khrushchev. Because he could not have continued the Stalinist uh, production uh, five-year plan vision without getting overthrown. Khrushchev was able to take power by uh, getting Zhukov on his side against um, Beria, and Beria at that time he he was he was he was able to hold power for like a number of months after Stalin's death, and in that time he was making feelers to fully transform the Soviet Union into a capitalist economy. He was. 
willing to ex- he wanted to extend the Marshall Plan into uh, the Soviet Union at the price of demobilizing class war forever. So that's the other thing that was on the table when Khrushchev took power. Uh, the fantasy that you're going to turn into uh, uh, Albania is just not possible. I mean, Mao is Mao actually tried to do that, and what happened? You had the Cultural Revolution and this massive, this this social wide cannibalistic frenzy to try to resolve the contradictions of maintaining uh, alienation at the point of labor with. The idea that you're in the you are in the communist utopia. How do you make that? You have to have uh, action. There has to be movement. As I said, it's not about a condition. It's about a trajectory. That is what we. That's the dream. That is what communism seeks to continue and uphold. And so, if you can't uh, overthrow class relations at the point of production, which they couldn't if they wanted to be a fucking player in the world and they wanted to develop, then that's it's got to come somewhere else. And Khrushchev said, give them fucking radios. Give them, give them vacations to the Black Sea. Give them hamburgers. Mao's idea, no, no, fuck that. We're going to give them, uh, we're going to give them a pageant of purification. And after they burned through the country, the last one standing was Deng and said, no, give them burgers. Oh, my God. Of course, there's still hope. I just said it already happened. You, fu- I already said that the hope has already been fulfilled. That we are living in the back splash of it. We're we're living in the halo. It's happened, man. We did it. We, if you use that term, uh, ecumenically, we did it. If you use we as 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 nodes of consciousness, we did it. Uh, subjective expressions of the uh, objective permanence of consciousness, we did it. That means our lives are infused with that meaning, with that trajectory, even if it appears uh, hopeless. But to really embrace that is to sever yourself from a specific type of hope. And that hope is, as I said, for the uh, culmination and perfection and uh redemption of a specific type of Western subjectivity that we are all captured by. That is not going to be it. 
And I think accepting that is the first step towards meaningful action, meaningful political action, meaningful social interactions of all kinds. Because at this point, I think clinging to that hope is really clinging to the ego. What is the restrict act? Is that the one about TikTok? So is this, so people are acting like this is going to be like the great Chinese firewall coming to America. Is that what's happening? If so, uh, yeah, I do kind of think uh, having to go elsewhere for, than the internet to have politically meaningful conversations is probably a good thing. Because Yes, we communicate ideas through this ether, but we also communicate uh, stasis because we promise deliverance through concentration and through deliberation. They're going to ban all VPNs? Damn. Damn, what's the penalty for having a VPN in China? Is it 20 years? It seems unlikely since so many of them use them. There's no penalty for using a VPN in China. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Oh, we're going to defend America's specific beautiful democracy against the threat of the horrible uh, yellow peril by, uh, by seeing their restrictions on internet and, and vastly raising them. That's very funny. I don't think we'll probably do that. We don't really need to do it as the thing, you know? All right. I guess that's it for now. I hope some of that, once again, made sense. But I understand that you people are just enabling me as I am enabling you in a mutual cycle of enabling. But that's all right. All right, peace and chicken grease.